2: On February 19th, 2020, Sakita Segan, who is known to her friends and family as Dita, came home from work. She got to her house in Carrollton, Texas. It's a mid-sized suburb of Dallas. Around 130,000 people live there, so it's big enough to be cosmopolitan, but also small enough to feel a sense of community. It's regularly listed as one of the safest places in Texas to live. One commenter wrote on Niche that, unofficially, Carrollton was voted the most safe city in Texas using data from the Nextdoor app, which is ironic considering the case we're covering this week. Once she got inside the house, we don't know exactly what happened next, how long she was downstairs going about her daily routine. At some point, she may have seen a light on or called out for her husband, Jim, or just had that feeling that you get sometimes when the house is unnaturally quiet. At some point, she went upstairs, walked into the home office, and found her husband, 62-year-old James Jim Segan, dead. Jim was still sitting in his office chair and had a black semi-automatic pistol in his left hand. The gun was resting on his left thigh, according to an arrest affidavit. It appeared as though he had been shot in the head. She called the police, and at first, when they got there, the officer suspected that the case could potentially be a suicide. They had an older male who was in the house alone, and they had a gunshot wound to the head. For men, a gun is the weapon most commonly used to commit suicide. Next to Jim, they found something else. There was a cryptic, typewritten note. And then Dita told detectives that there was something wrong with this crime scene because her husband was right-handed. That's when they started to suspect that the suicide could have been staged and that this investigation was not over. This was just the beginning. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. Detectives were investigating the death of 62-year-old Jim Segan in Carrollton, Texas, and they immediately knew that something seemed off. The details were just not adding up. Jolene DeVito of the Carrollton Police Department kind of summed up the department's feelings when she told the local news station, Fox 4 KDFW, It started out as what appeared to be a suicide. But from the very start, there were some things that just did not feel right about it. Forensic testing would later reveal the cause of death. That part had been fairly straightforward and was pretty immediately obvious. A gunshot wound to the head had killed Jim. But in addition to Dita telling police that her husband was right-handed, she said that he had never owned any guns. This gun was in Jim's left hand, and testing proved that the bullet had gone in the left side of his head and exited through the right side. But that wound pattern, which would indicate that Jim had picked up a gun and shot himself in the head with his non-dominant hand, made no sense. Then there was that typed suicide note that was sitting next to Jim's body. Unfortunately, since it was typed and not written out, there was no way to do a handwriting comparison. So detectives had to look for clues in the wording and phrasing. In the last sentence of the note, they found a potentially important one. The last line read, My last friend, Keith Ashley, will help you. Then there was a phone number printed. Now, Jim's friends and family knew who 48-year-old Keith Ashley was. Everybody in town seemed to know Keith. He had been Jim's friend for several years. Keith and his wife, Brandy, socialized with Jim and his wife. They would have dinner together. And according to media reports, Keith also visited Jim's house regularly on his own. Keith told police that he had been Jim's financial advisor, and he was also a successful local businessman. Keith owned a brewing company in nearby Allen called Nine Band Brewing Company, named for the nine-banded armadillo that's a native of Texas. It's known for its best-selling beer, the Badge Honey Blonde. Keith Ashley's background before that is a bit of a mystery. He opened the brewery when he was in his 40s. Before that, according to media reports, he worked as a policeman and a fireman, among other jobs, for a period of time. According to the Dallas Morning News, that small brewery business was a big deal. It was the first microbrewery in the small town, and it made Keith kind of a local celebrity. A profile was written on star local media that showed Keith, who was a native of Queens, New York, smiling in his brown and orange nine-band T-shirt, which looks kind of like an IZOD T-shirt, except that in the space where the little alligator is, there's a little orange armadillo. In the interview, Keith did a shout-out to his wife, Brandy, and their son and daughter. He also made an appearance on a YouTube channel called Lifestyle Frisco, where he talked about bringing Oktoberfest to Frisco Square in Dallas in 2018. There's not much information out there about the couple, but I did find a single listing for Brandy. She's listed as the office manager of the Nine Band Brewing Company. But it's impossible to tell from this listing if she was actually involved with the business or if this was one of those in-name-only kind of positions. We just have to wait for more information to come out. The profile read, quote, Since opening in 2015, Nine Band Brewery owner and CEO Keith Ashley has expanded his line of craft beers from his headquarters at Nine Prestige Circle in Allen, across the Lone Star State and beyond. On Saturdays, the Nine Band staff gives tours of their 5,400-square-foot brew house where the magic happens, offering patrons a behind-the-scenes look at how their favorite beverages are made. The site also has a tap room and patio where guests can enjoy a beer weeknights and weekends." End quote. In this profile, Keith comes across as a real fun-loving guy who cares about his employees. And the image that he wanted to convey was clearly one of success, a guy who had made it and in fact was so successful that he was expanding to other locations. But behind the scenes, investigators discovered evidence that suggested that Keith's reality was very different from the image that he projected to the public. One of the reasons I wanted to do this case is because I've noticed that in this case and in so many fraud cases, a lot of the criminals have all of these positive media profiles of them. It reminds me of the fire Festival. Sometimes the positive media coverage can actually allow the people who are committing the fraud to scam even more people because they can point to the articles that have been written about them or sometimes their Instagram followers or whatever as proof of their alleged success. Sometimes journalists are given a hard time, but a lot of times, especially on local newspapers and magazines, the job of the person writing about media or local businesses is not to do deep dives into their financial workings. They're supposed to be getting local color and interviews. This isn't the Financial Times. These are fluffy features, trend pieces. It's definitely worth keeping in mind whenever you read a profile of a local business person. In this profile, the reporter Garrett Cook... Asked Keith about his life and his background. Keith described himself as a craft beer enthusiast and also said that he wanted a business that was not solely driven by the economic situation. I wanted something that would bring a diverse group of people together in a social environment. Now, this sounds like a nice quote, like he's being socially responsible. It's also a little bit strange. From a business person's perspective, it's strange to have someone stating that they did not want to make a profit or didn't really care about it. Again, this might just be in hindsight, but it's something that does raise red flags as a fraud investigator. While they investigated the relationship between Keith and Jim, detectives poured through Jim's phone records. They hoped that this would give them a clue as to his state of mind that day. Had he been depressed? Who did he talk to? Did he have some kind of a confrontation with someone? They found that he had answered and made a few calls that day. At 9.11 a.m., a call came in from Keith Ashley. Detectives wanted to know what that call had been about, so they went back to Jim's wife, Dita. She told them that after finding Jim, she was distraught and overwhelmed with having to take care of the financial details of her husband's passing. So she followed what she believed were her late husband's instructions. She did as Jim's note suggested and went to Keith for help. She would later tell the detectives that she felt that she needed the help. She needed someone to help her get in touch with all these people that her husband dealt with to help settle his affairs. Then Keith told her something odd. He said that in order to get in touch with these people on Jim's behalf, he needed to get access to Jim's cell phone. So Dita gave Keith the phone. At first, she wasn't suspicious, but then she said that she saw him appearing to delete text messages between him and Jim. Now at this point, alarm bells are ringing in her head. She asked him about it, and Keith told her that deleting the messages was just an accident, which is also what he reportedly told police. Finally, she got Jim's phone back and turned it over to detectives. Now they had control of Jim's phone. They forensically went through the phone, trying to get access to all of his call records, all of his files, including files that had been deleted. And that's when they found out that while Keith had had that phone in his possession, he had wired himself $20,000. He sent the money from Jim's bank to his bank. When police confronted him about it, he claimed that, like deleting those text messages, the wire had been accidental. But at this point, between the messages and the money wire, there are a few too many accidents. Police did a deeper dive into the phone and found out that Keith's thefts went way beyond a $20,000 check. Police also discovered multiple documents where it looked like the signatures had been forgeries. They didn't match Jim's signature. They suspected that Keith had forged them all. One of the documents said that money, $65,000 that Jim had given Keith, was a non-repayable gift. Keith Ashley claimed that he had been investing money for clients for years, but investigators say that his real business Was running a multi million dollar Ponzi scheme. It seemed as though Keith's real business was the business of taking people's money and not giving it back. Now, this is a case that is continuing to unfold because Keith has not had his day in court yet. He's pleaded not guilty and is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. All the information that I'm presenting in this podcast has come from arrest affidavits and local media reports. But I chose this story because I want to take a look at a red collar case as it's unfolding. Police said that Keith had been acting as Jim's financial advisor for years. In that time, he was actually operating a Ponzi scheme, and he defrauded victims out of over a million dollars. Now, a lot of people ask, what's the difference between a Ponzi scheme and a pyramid scheme? In a Ponzi scheme, investors take money from their clients and promise them that they'll put their money into investments and give them back the returns. But instead of investing the money, they keep the money. So, when they need to pay their old clients, the only way to do that is to recruit new people, take their money, and pay the old clients with the new clients' money. This can go on for a long time, especially when the economy is good. But when they run out of new clients, or people want their money back, or someone catches on, they can fall apart fast. A pyramid scheme is really similar. It relies on constant flow of new investors and new money to keep it going. But in a pyramid scheme, everyone is recruiting new people. In a financial firm, the Ponzi scheme guy is the kind of lone wolf. And the pyramid scheme's more like the boiler room, constantly recruiting new people into their organization to make it work. Over the years, prosecutors say that Keith received more than $1.3 million from investors. They say that he promised to invest the funds with Smart Trust or Parkland Securities, who he was working with. Instead, he just pocketed the money, more than $1.1 million. He repaid about $81,000 to investors, but kept the rest. The indictment read, quote, Keith accomplished this by purporting to take their money as an investment, and instead of depositing their funds into an investment account, used it for his own personal purposes. He used their own money and money from others he defrauded to pay dividends to give the appearance of legitimate returns, end quote. So pretty much the dictionary definition of a Ponzi scheme. It went on for a long time, but by the time Jim was killed, the scheme was beginning to unravel. Investigators were also looking at Jim's body, which provided more clues. And the autopsy revealed something else that was extremely odd. Jim had a drug called Etomidate in his system. Now that's an anesthetic that's only found in hospital settings. Doctors and nurses use it during surgery to put patients under. It's not something that would ever be found in someone's body under normal circumstances. Now police are working on a new theory. Someone with medical training and a connection to a hospital or a doctor's office had killed Jim.
0: People today can spend half their lives over 50, so it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation.
2: So detectives went back to the potential crime scene, Jim's office. They had asked for any video surveillance that the couple had. Nest cameras and ring doorbells have changed the game so much in investigations, by the way. I think that with the new technology, investigators might find that a lot of cases they believed were suicides were actually staged. Luckily, the couple had a Nest security camera system. So police went to the Nest doorbell footage that was recorded on the day Jim died they saw Keith arriving at the house. He was let in at 9.31 a.m. The video then showed Keith leaving at 10.21 a.m. But a few minutes later, the doorbell cam caught him again. This time, police say he could be seen ringing the doorbell, waiting, and then going back into the house. He opened the door, let himself in, and was inside just a few minutes before coming back out of the house, just a few minutes later, according to the arrest affidavit but there was another disturbance in the camera. After Keith came back to the house, and during the time when presumably both men were inside during that few minutes, there was an unidentified loud noise in the garage. It triggered another camera that was inside there, but police weren't sure what this noise was. It's unclear whether there was any security camera footage in the garage, but it's not mentioned in the arrest affidavit. But police didn't give up. They did extensive forensic sound testing, it involved basically firing the exact model handgun into a ballistic shell under exactly the same conditions. Now, this is not definitive proof, but they did conclude that their belief was the gun that was fired in that garage was probably the event that caused the camera to come on. The video footage also allowed detectives to rule out the possibility that anyone else had come to the door. Keith was the only person seen on camera before Dita came home. Also, after 10.15, when the garage cam was activated, James's phone was radio silent. There's no record that he made or answered any calls after that or sent or received any text. At this point, police believe that Keith drugged Jim and killed him, staging his suicide. But now they needed to figure out how the drug had gotten into Jim's body. Etomidate is a type of general anesthesia. It's meant to be used for short procedures like reduction of dislocated joints, or the type of procedures where doctors need to put a tube down one's throat. It's also, by the way, been used as one of the components in lethal injections in Florida. I did a lot of research on this drug and apparently it used to be much more common in emergency rooms than it is now. Now most doctors use Propofol because it has a safer cardiovascular risk profile. So it's in general, it's less likely to cause a drop in blood pressure. But doctors do still use Etomidate for traumatic brain injuries so you can still find it in hospitals. It has an elimination half-life of around 75 minutes. It's short-acting, which means that it would be out of the body in about an hour and a half. But once someone dies, this process stops, and the drug can stay in the system. The affidavit stated, when atomidate is injected intravenously, the patient is rendered unconscious almost instantly. James's friends and family insisted that he didn't use drugs, He hadn't been to the hospital recently or had any type of procedure that would have caused him to have this drug in his body. Again, this isn't a drug that you can buy off the street or even go through a pharmacy to get. This is something that is only found inside a hospital setting. And detectives knew that Keith Ashley appeared to have been in the home around the time when Jim was fatally shot. So they were starting to answer the questions about the who and the when. Now they needed to figure out how and why. Police searched Keith's home and truck. They looked through his phone and electronic devices and also searched his business in September 2020. As part of this, they talked to some of his employees at the brewery, and they found out that they weren't the only ones doing some digging. According to news reports, Keith seemed to be doing his own investigation behind the scenes. Authorities found an empty envelope from the Dallas Medical Examiner's Office and a receipt for Jim's autopsy report. It turned out that the autopsy had been mailed to one of Keith's employees at the brewery, according to the Star-Telegram. Keith told the employee, according to the newspaper, that he was looking to the cause of death himself because Jim's family was trying to figure out if he could have been poisoned or if it was really a suicide. So he made it seem like he was trying to help the family. As they do with any suspected murder investigation, and especially one involving potential fraud, police started to check for insurance policies. Jim had two of them. One was valued at $2 million. Keith had sold him both policies. He told detectives that he never charged Jim for providing him with financial services. Detectives discovered that Keith had made his money another way. Over the years, they say he had taken over $700,000 from Jim. Detectives found Jim's bank accounts that showed that over the years, he had transferred around $750,000 to Keith's company over the years. And Jim was not the only victim. During this investigation, detectives found several other victims of this Ponzi-type scheme that was allegedly orchestrated by Keith. There were nine victims in total, including Jim. And Keith was getting more and more desperate. According to reports, he told detectives that he had used that $20,000 that he allegedly stole from Jim's accounts to cover payments to some of his other investors. And the $2 million life insurance policy had recently been changed. On January 24th, Jim's wife was removed as the beneficiary of that account. Instead, the money would be sent to Jim's trust. Of course, the purse listed as the trustee and as the executor of Jim's will was, guess who, Keith Ashley. Dita was totally shocked by this. She told detectives she had no idea that this policy even existed. And when she looked at the forms, she insisted that it was not her signature on them. The Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, or FINRA, is the organization that monitors these firms. And they do something called a broker check report. I pulled the report for Keith Todd Ashley, CRD number 4096004. It's posted online. According to the report, Keith was previously registered with three security forms. Parkland Securities, Sigma Financial Corporation, and Walnut Street Securities. Now, these documents seem kind of dry and boring, but there is a wealth of information in them if you know what to look for. I've said before that you should pay close attention to a person's civil record, not just their criminal record. This includes fraud, theft, non-payment of judgments, etc., because not paying people back or defrauding them is a window into their character, and it is a huge red flag. In the report, I found out that in 1991, Keith pleaded no contest to a case of felony forgery. Now, according to the brokerage report, he said that he was 17 when he signed the back of a check and was caught at age 18. It read, quote, case dismissed when I was just about to turn 20, end quote. Now, it seems like not that big a deal. It's just a single check. But this is the beginning of a pattern, defrauding and deflecting responsibility, minimizing the harm to victims and taking zero responsibility for his actions. Once again, as with all red-collar criminals, it's all about him. In 2008, a complaint was lodged against Keith from the securities company where he was working as an insurance broker. The client said that he'd requested that his policy be canceled in 2009 and his premiums returned, but claims that this was never done. According to the complaint, the firm was unable to determine the amount of damages, and so the client complaint was denied. Now, all of this information is buried at the bottom of a report, but it's the same behavior that Keith would be accused of in Jim's case. Parkland Securities Company terminated Keith in October 2020. They said, the firm has reason to believe that the representative engaged in undisclosed outside business activities and also failed to provide the firm with prior notice of private securities transactions involving his privately held company. According to a blog written on the page of a law firm called Stoltman Law, The best way for victims of people like Keith to get some kind of justice is to seek compensation by filing a claim in arbitration through the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, or FINRA. They wrote, this is the surest and most direct path to recovery since Keith was registered with FINRA and Parkland Securities was a legitimate company. One of the most frustrating aspects of these crimes is their secrecy since a lot of them are settled in arbitration Everything is sealed. And so unlike court records, we can't always look them up. And sometimes people get a false sense of security if they're dealing with a legitimate company. They tell themselves that if their broker is working with a company like Parkland Securities, someone reputable, their money must be safe. So I started to wonder, what exactly are the rules? What does FINRA expect of companies like Parkland Securities? It turns out that they're expected to have something called reasonable supervisory procedures in place to monitor their brokers. These rules were covered in the Securities Exchange Act, so they've existed since the 1930s. FINRA Rule 3110 specifically mandates that these supervisory procedures be effective to prevent and to deter violations of the securities laws. Typically, in cases where a licensed broker like Keith was pulling off a Ponzi scheme, There are red flags over time that the broker could be involved with something that could potentially violate FINRA rules. This can take a lot of different forms. They can be emails or text messages, which, by the way, brokerage firms are required to supervise. All kinds of evidence that suggests the broker is living a lifestyle beyond his legitimate means. Taken together, red flags can be used to build a compelling case against the brokerage firm for negligent supervision. Now, that third one is probably the hardest to prove. I think of the mobster movies like Goodfellas, where the crime boss gets upset when one of the guys buys an expensive car or mink coats for his wife after a big heist. But not all financial frauds are this obvious. Sometimes people can hide their money in a business, like a brewery, for example, or something else, like a second home. The police investigation into Keith dragged on for several months, but eventually they developed a theory. They believed that Keith had come over to Jim's house, acted like everything was normal and this was just another business day, and then somehow given him a shot, which would have knocked him out immediately before putting the gun in Jim's hand. But there were still unanswered questions like, how had Keith managed to inject Jim with an anesthetic without Jim fighting him? It turned out that there was something else police didn't know. Because in addition to being a brewery owner and a purported financial advisor, Keith Ashley had a third career as a nurse. People today can
0: spend half their lives over 50, so it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation.
2: According to reports, in the past, Keith had worked as a former police officer and firefighter and served in the military as a helicopter flight nurse. He also worked for an air ambulance service at one point, and he's described as an RN. Though with red collar cases, as you may know, I take nothing for granted. So I did a search on the Texas Board of Nursing Examiner website. It showed that Keith Todd Ashley has a license and is a registered nurse. And as of January, 2021, the license appears to still be active. While operating the brewery, Keith Ashley was working as an RN at City Hospital at White Rock in Dallas. A spokesperson for the hospital said that Keith started working there in May, 2019, and that he was fired on July 4, 2020 for not working enough shifts, according to CBS 11 News. Police were able to extract something else from Jim Segan's phone. According to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, when they looked into the phone, they found that Jim had an entry set for 9 a.m. on February 19th that read Keith-Blood. Detectives believe that Keith told Jim that he needed to update his life insurance policy and that as part of that process, he would need to do some type of physical exam. So Keith made up a story and told Jim that he needed to draw some blood as part of that exam. That gave him the perfect excuse to inject the Atomidate. As a nurse, he would have known exactly what to do. So when Keith pulled out the syringe, Jim probably didn't bat an eyelid. After all, this was his old friend and colleague. He trusted him completely. After Jim was dead, Keith was able to convince his wife to hand over the phone. And then he began draining money from Jim's bank account, according to the Dallas Morning News. By now, this has turned into a massive investigation involving the FBI, the Carrollton Police Department, and the U.S. Attorney's Office. Finally, the authorities had caught up to Keith Ashley. But, as it sometimes happens in red-collar cases, they hit him with the money charges first and only later charged him with murder. A federal grand jury indicted Keith on six counts of wire fraud on November 12th. On November 13th, Authorities took him into federal custody on those charges, all of them related to the alleged Ponzi scheme. A few days later, the Carrollton Police Department charged Keith with murder in connection with Jim's death. According to a grand jury indictment, Keith had been running his Ponzi scheme while he was a registered representative for Parkland Securities, formerly known as Salmon Security Company, and Midland National, a life insurance company. According to the indictment, the way the scam worked was that Keith would recommend that investors purchase UITs, Unit Investment Trusts, through Parkland and another firm he was behind. The indictment alleges that Keith promised returns of anywhere between 3 and 9% per year. He also promised his investors that their principal would never be at risk, which sounds too good to be true. But instead of investing the money as he promised to do, According to the indictment, Keith converted a substantial amount of it, more than a million dollars for his own use. He allegedly did this by using one of his financial services companies as a front. It was called North Texas Money Management. A lot of people may wonder why I'm bringing up all these different company names, but it's actually really important. These details are really important because so many of us can be fooled by a company name. If it sounds legitimate and has a business bank account, a lot of people will think that they can trust that. I see it over and over again as a private investigator. A lot of us don't realize that in America, it takes just a few minutes to get something called an employee identification number or EIN number. You go online, they're randomly assigned by the IRS, and this allows you to set up a bank account. It's actually even easier in a way to set up a company bank account than a personal bank account because it's not tied to a social security number. Bottom line is, it looks fancy, but it could be a cover for fraud. And it certainly was for Keith. He used the investments as his own personal piggy bank. He used the money to fund his brewery, paid his mortgage, and his student loans. And he went on lavish trips, according to court documents. He also allegedly gambled some of the money away at casinos. According to local news station, KXAS, Keith had allegedly been scamming people since 2013. Keith pleaded not guilty. According to court records, he was denied bond and is being held at Fannin County Jail, about 75 miles outside of Dallas. And as in every case, Keith is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. He's due to go to trial in 2021, and if convicted, he faces up to 20 years in federal prison. The United States is also seeking $1.143 million of their money back. The Nine Bands Brewery appears to have closed. Google listed the business as temporarily closed last time I checked, which can mean many things in the time of COVID, but the website has been pulled down, which is never, in my experience, a good sign. And authorities say there may be more victims out there, other than the eight that they've already talked to. A man who sold life insurance for a living, put himself down as executor of someone's will, and has medical and police training, raises just about every red flag it's possible to raise, for me as an investigator. Jolene DeVito, a spokesperson for the Carrollton Police Department, said that police were putting information out to the media and making the case public in the hopes that they may reach them. She said, If you interacted with this man, if you feel like you were also a victim, reach out and let us know. When discussing a potential motive, she also said, in her opinion, it was, the oldest motive there is, money, one of them anyway. Meanwhile, Jim's friends and family struggle to come to terms with what happened. And police say, look forward to the trial being over and hopefully to justice being served. The police department has asked anyone with information about Jim's murder or any other financial fraud to call their tip line at 972 466 9133. You can also email crime tips at cityofcarrollton.com. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Catherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, RedcollarPodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <coughs> Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them Miracle Grow.